All right, we are in Acts chapter 13. Um, I forgot to... So the, the title of the lesson tonight is um, The Mission Begins. If you are, you've been hearing, I mean, especially since I've been here, I think I've spoken so much about this, about making disciples, being on mission, and maybe that's something that you really want to start thinking about, start doing in your personal life that you have not been doing as much, then this will be a good lesson for you to sort of wrap your head around it. So hang in there as, as, as I'll unpack this. We are making progress with the book of Acts. Uh, we are in chapter 13, and uh, this is lesson 32. And I'm really not um, trying to delay things. It just, it, I just take a text at a time. Now, the first seven chapters of the book, just want to give you this background quickly, and I shared it with you last week via video. Sorry, I didn't make it into, in time. It was that guy at the back there. Um, he was late for his flight, and so I couldn't be here on Sunday. So luckily, I made that video quickly before we left. But the first seven chapters of Acts, we can call the church among the Jews. Okay? The next five chapters, chapter 8 through 12, we can say it's the church in transition from the Jews to the Gentiles. And then the last 16 chapters, um, then we can call that the church among the Gentiles, as the gospel spreads into the Gentile world. So the missionary journeys are going to start tonight, which are exciting stories as we are told how these disciples go and they start moving throughout territories that they've never been before. And where there are pagan gods being worshipped. And they are taking this message of a peasant who died on a cross in, in their perspective so randomly in Judea. And he supposedly changed the world. So it was, it, it, it's interesting how these missionary journeys took place. Um, so Saul and Barnabas... We discussed last week, they were chosen by, by the church, the church in Antioch, and, and, and the church said, listen, now we want to send you guys into the world to take the gospel. And the Holy Spirit um, was also part of that whole process. So as they go about, someone should be writing down what's happening, right? Because we have the stories in the Bible, and I'm not sure who, who's actually doing the writing, whether it's Barnabas or whether it's Saul, but it seems like tonight... We, you're going to see there's a third character coming to the story, and he's sort of in the background. And I think he possibly wrote down these stories, in my, in my estimation. So, we see these gentlemen start with what is called the first missionary journey. And we're going to start with that tonight. But let me ask a few questions to start off with. Have you done everything you can to connect the gospel with your circle? And when I, when I say your circle, I'm talking about your friends and your family. Have you done any, everything you can... To connect the gospel with them. And if you're struggling to talk to family and friends about the gospel, about Christ, or, or praying for them, what, what, is, what is blocking that from happening? And secondly, do you think it's easy for popular thought to affect your views on truth? I hope that's not a difficult question, but I, I see just a lot of people, it's like the, the more they watch the news, the more they watch YouTube videos, the more they become like unsure about what God's word says like they start doubting God's Word. And I think it's really easy. I mean, if you, if you can go onto Facebook now, you can just check some videos there. And if you believe everything you see, within a few, uh, within a few weeks, you're going to have a total change of view of what truth is. Like I've, I've told you before about this young lady who, who's, who, showed, who showed me a photo once of a, of a man that was pregnant. Like he had a beard and a belly and everything. And I asked her, like, do you believe this is true? Do you believe 
a man can get pregnant? What did she say? She was 14 years old. She said, yes. That's like, how can you believe that? It was the most ridiculous thing in the world for me. So I Googled it. I Googled it. I put it on Google. Can a man become pregnant? Guess what Google says? Yes. <laughs> Google says yes. But obviously, they're not talking about a biological man. That wasn't a biological man. It was a biological woman with a, a uterus. That, that, is that the right word, uterus? Yeah. That, that had a beard and stuff. And was pregnant. It was the most, I'll be honest with you, it was a disgusting picture. So it just shows you in, in the world where we live, there's a lot of influence that can easily make you disbelieve what the Word of God says. Second, thirdly, why would anyone oppose the conversion of someone to Christ? Like somebody wants to get to know Christ, why would somebody oppose that conversion? That's fine. He, you know, he can talk. He's, he's hearing this guy talk and he wants to respond and do you know of anybody with a history of the same mistakes? Like this guy, girl, continually does the same stupid things. And how do you address that? How do you deal with that? Do you keep quiet about it or, you know, do you, do you, do you address it? And what are the ing ingredients of successful conversion? What, what, what does a person need to con be converted to Christ properly? Just the story of Jesus? Just you? Or must something special happen from heaven? Well, we're going to talk about all of these things. So let's get into the text for tonight. Remember, we ended off last week with the church or the Holy Spirit selecting these two individuals to be missionaries to go into the world. Let's see what happens. Chapter 13, 4 to 12. The two of them, that's Barnabas and Saul, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia, and sailed from there to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, that's not food, that's a place, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John was with them as their helper. So now suddenly there are three guys, and John is with them. Now let's look at a little map here quickly. So there's Antioch, that's where the church is at. The text says they sail for Seleucia, which was basically just a... Um, a port city, sorry, they didn't set sail there. They probably traveled by land there, although they could have by, by water because there's a, a river apparently that flows to Antioch. And so Seleucia was a, a very big port city. And, and the, then they, they sailed over to Salamis and they um, entered the island there. Let me just see where we ended off with. Yeah. When they arrived at Salamis, what did they do? The first thing they did was they went and they preached in the, the synagogues. Now, Saul, who knows where Saul was born? Was he born in Judean territory or Greek territory? Gentile territory. He was born in Gentile territory. Who remembers where Barnabas came from? Barnabas was a Levite from Cyprus. This very place that they're going to. That's interesting. They were both Jews, but they were both born in, in the Gentile uh, territories, in the Gentile world. So do you think that they are pretty well equipped to deal with the Gentile world as Jews? Yes, of course they are. And as they sat in Antioch and they were mapping out, hey, where's the first place we're going to go? They said, we're going to go to Cyprus. You know what, Barnabas? Let's go to your fatherland. Let's go to the place where you were born. Let's go to the people with, uh, among whom you grew up. The largest, 
island in the Mediterranean. And why do you think that's the first place they went to? I think simply in my estimation, if I was going to select, okay, what's the first place I'm going to go to? I'm going to go to the place that I know the most or I know the best. I'm going to go to my own people first. I'm going to go to my own family members, to my own country, to my own land, to my own home. A thought came to my mind as I was looking at this. Quoting Mark chapter 6 verse 4, does not absolve the missional responsibility. And maybe you've got no idea what I'm saying. Well, Mark chapter 6 and verse 4 is a scripture that we often quote when we talk about converting our family members and our friends. It says this, A prophet is not without honor except in his own town, among his relatives, and in his own home. And what Jesus is getting at there is it's perhaps the most hardest people to preach the gospel to or to share the gospel with is our own family members and the people in our own town, the people who saw us grow up because they know what a mess we are and what we have done. Now, I'm sure the fact that Barnabas was a Cyprian native influenced their decision to go there. And I think that he had the same challenge as Jesus, right? Because Jesus went to Nazareth to preach to his own people and what did they do to him? They wanted to push him off the cliff and kill him, his own family. They rejected him. And so he took a risk, but he went there in anyways, Barnabas, to preach the gospel to his own people. Our personal evangelism should start at home. The, the disciples were told, you start where? In Jerusalem, and then Judea, and then Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. Jesus also, like I said, went to his own hometown. So we can't say, well, you know what? I'm not going to talk to my family about Jesus because of Mark chapter 6 verse 4. It doesn't take away the responsibility to try and connect with our family members. And they went and they preached in the synagogues first. I mean, you can imagine they land in Salamis and they say, okay, well, where are we going to start now? Are we going to go to the marketplace? Where are we going to start? They started where people were most likely to listen to them, the Jewish synagogues. Why is that? Well, I think probably two things. They were Jews, so they would be open to, to hearing a Jew speak. And number two, the people that were in the synagogues, they believed in God already. So you had, a, you had an easier way. It, you're going to be more effective talking to the Jews in the synagogue than you, you're going to be at uh, the temple of Venus to people who worship some pagan god or the atheists who are busy bathing on the beach in their bikinis. It's going to be much easier just to go to the synagogues. Um, they were most likely to be successful there. It is difficult to impose correction without connection. And what I mean by that is it's very hard to go and try and correct people that you have no connection with. Barnabas was a Jew, Saul was, well, a Jewish background, Saul was a Jewish background, so it was easier for them to connect with the people in the synagogue. Because we are connected to our families and friends, it should, it should help us to connect with them or to correct them with the gospel. It should, because they should know that we love them. Um, then there's John Mark. The text talks about John Mark. 
Do you remember that while Peter was in prison, I think it was Acts chapter 11, and he prayed, well, they, the church was busy praying for him at somebody's house. Do you know at whose house that was? That was at this guy's mother's house, Mary, John Mark. It was at his mother's house. It has traditionally been accepted that this is the person who wrote the gospel of Mark. It is possible, according to Colossians 4 verse 10, that this guy was the cousin of Barnabas. And it, the text says that he was helping them. Just to take you back quickly, the text says that they preached in the Jewish synagogues and John was with them as their helper. How he was helping them, I don't know, perhaps with food, perhaps accommodation, perhaps writing down what they were busy doing. Either way, he was an asset. And, and it teaches us, some people preach and some people help those who preach. And that's okay. Let's read what happens further. So, verse 6. Don't worry, guys. Don't worry, Marley. Story's going to get exciting. Hang in there. Okay. They traveled through the whole island until they came to Paphos. There they met a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet named Bar-Jesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul Sergius Paulus. The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. The island, they say, let's just go back to the map quickly here. Yeah? They say that journey from Salamis to Paphos, traveling across the whole island, that's about 170 miles. You would do that in two hours, my brother, with your bike. Hmm? If you have gas. Yes. So they, and it's interesting, it's, it looks like they wanted to cover the whole place. They wanted everybody to hear on this whole island. But the text doesn't tell us, how did it go? You just traveled 170 miles. You've gone through probably most of the towns. The text doesn't tell us how it went. There's, there's no evangelistic success. We're only told of this sort of, this one story. And I want you to remember this tonight. That is the nature of the mission sometimes. You cover a lot of ground. You talk to a lot of people. You pray for a lot of people, but there's little fruit. But the story stops in Paphos, where something great happens. Paphos was a, had a splendid temple that was erected to Venus. And that goddess was worshipped throughout the whole island. Cyprus was the place where this goddess was apparently born. And it seems like the more they move westwards, yes, the more pagan the people become. The more they move west, the more Roman influence they see. I had this note in there, and I'm just trying to wrap my head around why I put it in there, but we must be able to wash our hands because the text says that they traveled through the whole island. They wanted everybody to hear about it. And there's a verse that came to my mind, Acts chapter 20, verse 26. Paul speaks to the Ephesian elders and he says to them, I declare to you today that I'm innocent of the blood of any of you. That's a bold statement. I'm innocent of the blood of any of you, for I've not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. When, when, Barnabas, and, when Barnabas and Saul, when they actually moved through that piece of land there, they can come to the other side and they can say, we spoke to everybody about you. We can wash our hands on this island. 
We cannot be held accountable that, for these people not having heard the message of the cross. We must be able to wash our hands. And I want you to pause for a moment tonight. Can you wash your hands with regard to your friends and your family members and the people that are in your life? Can you say, Father, I've done everything that I can to tell them about you and to make sure that when they die, they are right with you. Well, there's this guy, Bar-Jesus. Let's go back to him quickly. Very interesting character. What does the text say he is? He's a sorcerer. He uses this, the, the, the Greeks the same word. He's a, he's a magi. He's a, a, a trickster. And he's a Jew. So he's like a sorcerer and a Jew. Like a, like a spiritist and a Jew. Like a religious person. And, and then sort of he's like, he's a false prophet. So he's a mixture of everything. I call him a hybrid for tonight. Let's call him a hybrid alien. He was a perfect representation of paganism mixed with Judaism. Because he was probably born a Jew. And then this Roman culture and the, the, the worship of Venus, and perhaps even emperor worship, throw it into the mix. You mix it all together and you get bar Jesus. This type of guy. Buckling under the pressure of the dominant culture to the point that we embrace that culture simultaneously. Then you get somebody like this. Bar Jesus. And my point here is this. Be careful of hybrids. I want you to remember what a hybrid is. Be careful. A hybrid is somebody who claims to love Jesus, but in their actions and in their belief system, they submit to the dominant cultural ideology. I believe in Jesus. Ah, oh, but you know what? That's fine, even though it contradicts exactly what Jesus says. Well, I believe in Jesus, but it's okay to just kill babies. I believe in Jesus, but a uh, woman can be a man. That's what you call a hybrid. It's a person who has submitted to the dominant culture to the extent that they've watered down their spiritual life. This guy was a hybrid. He's a Jew, oh, but he's also a sorcerer. And in a sense, I think he was also worshipping the emperor. He was really he's a bit confused about where he is and what he is. But there's this guy, Sergius Paulus. He's a proconsul. And he, these guys were together. So Bar Jesus was with this guy, Sergius Paulus. They, were, they, were, they were, seemed to be together. He was the governor of the island. That is a pretty high position. The text says he was a prudent man or an intelligent man. He was a thinker. Now, I've got to be honest with you. Like when, I'm, when I'm reading the text, it says he's intelligent and he's a thinker, but he's got this clown with him. This guy who does you know, sorcerous tricks and stuff claiming to be a Jew as well. I'm, I'm wondering, like, he wasn't intelligent there. But maybe they weren't mates. Maybe Sergius Paulus was still trying to figure out who this guy was. But somehow, Bar-Jesus had caught the attention of the governor. Or perhaps the governor was trying to figure out if this guy was for real. Either way, when Saul and Barnabas met one, they met the other. They met both of these guys together. This governor, the text says, he called for Saul and Barnabas, which is pretty cool. 
If the governor hears about you, you've been doing something good. You've been doing something right. The text says, look at that. He wanted, he wanted to hear. I looked at the Greek there, and it says that he desired. Epizeteo means that he was craving to hear what they had to say. He was craving it. So it wasn't just like, oh, these guys look interesting. I'd like to hear what they say. No, it's like, I really want to hear what these guys are saying. He was seeking for truth. Now, although Paul and uh, Barnabas didn't convert thousands of people as they traveled across this island, God allowed the governor to hear, hear about him. And I think that's beautiful. And he called for them. Classic evangelism involves God's hand despite us. They didn't know that they would stand in the court of a ruler. They just faithfully kept talking about Jesus wherever they went. And God opened the door. They didn't try to get into the governor's home to tell him about Jesus. They just were faithful with the small people they met along the road. They were called by the governor. Come, I want to hear what you have to say. Guys, when we are just faithful with whoever God puts in front of us, He will take us in front of people that want to hear about Him, that's seeking Him. If we're faithful with the small things, He'll give us bigger things. Let's read what verse 8 says. So everything is going well. They're on their way to this guy, to the governor, but Elimus, the sorcerer, for that is what his name means, that's the same guy, by the way. That's Bar-Jesus. This guy seems to have a few names. It seems like the people who were living in town called him Elimas, which simply means the sorcerer. That was sort of his, his nickname. Opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. So, they, so he's standing on the side and he listens to Saul and Barnabas preaching and telling the, the governor about everything. And he's like, nah, I'm going to resist these guys. He resisted the missionaries and their message. Why? You know, we've got to read between the lines. But it seems like he was, he was fighting for the acceptance of the governor. He had an ulterior motive. I think he wanted to be in the good books of the governor. He wanted to be popular. He wanted to um, be friends with the ruler, which makes sense. His own popularity and acceptance was at stake if this message was to be accepted. And perhaps it's, it's like that event earlier in the book of Acts where the this, this, this sorcerer is also making money off of his sorcery. Maybe it's the same situation. Maybe Saul and Barnabas had gone through the countryside and they performed miracles, real miracles. And maybe this guy, Elimus, was, was scared because if... If they are legit at this, then the governor is going to, not going to be interested in him and his magic anymore. And so he would lose this friendship and influence with the governor. So they did miracles. He did magic. He acted actively, the text says, tried to turn the governor from the way, the faith, from Jesus Christ. That is the worst thing you could ever do, is to turn somebody away from the gospel. Christianity will always be a stumbling block for the self-serving. Christianity is not a great religion for people who want to live for themselves. 
their own popularity and their own agendas. It's, it's a bad religion for you then. The heart of Christianity is aimed at serving others, not self. I mean, this guy, if he had a good heart, he would have said, this is great. Your life can change. Your sins can be forgiven. But he wanted to oppose this message because he was thinking about himself. You cannot befriend the faith unless you have given up your own wants and desires in service to others. Ish. But this guy made a big mistake. Yo, he made a big mistake. You know when you're driving in your car and you hoot at the guy who just cut in in front of you and he stops in the middle of the road and he climbs out and he's 160,000 feet tall with 3 billion pounds of muscles and you're like, ooh, that was a mistake. I should not have pressed that hooter. When I was, <laughs> when I was, I was, uh, how old was I? I was thinking I was 16 in South Africa. You can only get your driving license when you're 18. And I, I, I took my mom's, my mom was like, son, go buy bread for us. And I, I, I remember I had a girlfriend at the time and I wanted to be like, cool, you know. And I didn't want to walk down all the way to the shop. It's like a mile away. So I said to my, I didn't say anything. My mom went to the shower. I said, I'm going to take a car, man. I want to show this girlfriend of mine I can drive a car. She didn't go with, luckily. And I drive down to the filling station where the bread was, and I, I bought bread. And my mom always used to make this U-turn. It was something like Highway 20. You know what a U-turn is, right? Yeah, so she always used to make this sneaky U-turn because our road was a bit weird. And I was like, I'm going to do that this morning. I'm going to do it. And I make a U-turn. But I, I look back to the cars because it's going to come like this. I'm going to make a U-turn. over like, And there were no cars. But I haven't learned at this stage yet to use my mirrors. So... Don't do that. Use your mirrors. They're good for you. And I thought there was no car, and I just swung across. <laughs> yeah, and this guy in a big Jeep Cherokee smashed into me. Yeah, the car spins. <laughs> pieces of bread everywhere. Yeah. And the car stops. and <laughs> You know, I, I'm sure the, the girlfriend could hear the crash from the house. It was so loud. That was bad, bad. I climbed out of the car. Yes, like, I thought the Jeep Cherokee was big until the guy who climbed out, until I saw him. He was a big guy, and I was like 16 years old. So I know exactly what, that was a big, big mistake. Grab this. This guy is standing in front of the governor, in front of the Apostle Paul. And I don't know what his words were, but he is like, nah, I don't believe what these guys are saying. I don't want to be funny. Have you guys seen the Apostle Paul, like just his life, the stuff that this guy did? Would you do something like that in front of him? <laughs> yes, I wouldn't. He didn't know, this guy, Elimas, poor Elimas, he didn't know that he was standing in the presence of a warrior. A person who has given up his life for Jesus Christ. A person who has authorized the death penalty on others. A person who knows what it feels like to be used by Satan. A person who has met Jesus Christ, who has gone up to the third heaven. In South Africa, you know, there's a, we've got a comedian, and I, I love listening to this guy, but he, always, he makes these jokes about the discipline of Afrikaans people. And it is like this in South Africa. It's like, it's like when, you, when you do something wrong, the Afrikaans culture is like very disciplined. It's like there's no, there's no talking. It's just a slap. 
And usually it's with the question. Like when you, when you back chat your parent, the immediate response is, what did you say? Did you just say that? And then the next thing is you lose a tooth. It's how it works. It starts with a question and then you get beaten. It's as quickly as that. And I'm imagining in this moment when he's like, when Elimas is standing there and he says, hey, uh, uh, don't listen to these guys, to the governor. Paul is like, what? What did you just say? What do you think that you are doing? You're opposing the gospel of Jesus Christ? Are you insane? Look at what happens in this text. Then Saul. Barnabas is like humble, meek and mild in the corner. Ooh. Saul's like, whoa, whoa. Saul was also called Paul. By the way, this is the critical point of change. This is the moment where Saul is no longer Saul. He becomes Paul now. Filled with the Holy Spirit. Looked straight at Elimas. Yeah, I wouldn't want Paul to look at me now this way. And said, you are a child of the devil. And an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? You see, there's the question. Just like the Afrikaners. What did you say? There's the question. Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You are going to be blind for a time, not even able to see the light of the sun. Immediately, mist and darkness came over him, and he groped about seeking someone to lead him by the hand. The text says that he was filled with the Holy Spirit. What does this mean? I think it means that he was suddenly very emboldened. Very emboldened. He's standing in front of the, the governor, right? I mean, Saul could make, maybe these guys are best buddies. He doesn't care. He steps in. He was 100 million percent confident about what he was going to say next when he looked at him. He was about to bring words to this guy straight from heaven. There was no doubt in his mind about the judgment that he was about to bring. It was clear as night and day to Paul that this guy standing in front of him is an instrument of Satan. And he asks him that question. But interesting. Look at the character. Character traits that Paul unpacks. The text doesn't tell us that they spend days together. Paul could quickly evaluate, hey, this guy's a mess. You are full of deceit. You're full of mischief or recklessness. You're a child of Satan. He uses the word diabolos, the accuser, the slanderer. You're a snake. You're an enemy of all that is right and good. Will you not stop perverting the right ways of God? This guy had a track record, which Paul could very quickly evaluate and pick up. And I, I honestly think this is what happened. Like, I can imagine Paul is like that. He gets into this meeting room with this guy, and he looks, looks at this guy, and he's trying to figure out this guy. Wait, you're a Jew, but you're a sorcerer. You do magic, but you're a Jew. I'm a Jew. I, I, I was a Jew my whole life. I understand the law. I understand Yahweh. And let me tell you this, you've got no idea who God is. Like, what are you, are you worshipping Venus or are you worshipping this emperor here? Why are, you, why, why are you trying to please this guy so much and suck up to him? Can you imagine Paul is making these evaluations within a few minutes? 
He's unpacking this guy, and he sees his character. I think Paul was waiting to rip him apart. He was waiting for it, because I don't think it makes sense. It doesn't make sense. You practice paganism, but you believe in Yahweh? You are perverted, and you are confused. He unpacks him quickly. Be bold and remind people of their track record of destruction. Paul could see there's something wrong with this guy. He doesn't just think about now. He, he sort of points out his whole life. Because look at what he says there in verse 10. Will he never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? It's like he has a track record of doing this. Paul speaks prophetically into this guy's life. You have a problem. Sometimes when we meet people, we can see they've got a problem. We are friends that have a problem. They've got a track record. A track record that's a mess. And nobody ever talks to them. Nobody brings the track record, the sequence, the cycle to an end because we're not honest with them. 1 Timothy 5.24-25 says, The sins of some are obvious, reaching the place of judgment ahead of them. The sins of others trial trail behind them. In the same way, good deeds are obvious, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden forever. And I just elevate, I mean, there's so much to say about that text, but the main point I just want to pick out is that Paul is giving us a good illustration here, that when you see somebody who's got a track record of consistently doing stupid things that wreck their spiritual lives and that wreck the spiritual lives of others, we need to be bold enough to stand up to them and say, hey man, this needs to stop. You're wrecking your life and you're hurting people. And so Paul brings judgment on this guy. The thing that he feared the most fell upon him. That he would be revealed as an imposter and a liar in front of the governor and lose all credibility. The apostles not only had power to perform miracles, but to deliver divine judgment. He strikes them with, he strikes him with blindness. And the text says, for a time. So it's not a permanent judgment. There was hope. There was a time to repent. Oregon, the great early church father, says that this man repented and became a Christian. I won't take what he says as scripture, but that's something historical that somebody says. And what's interesting for me is that Paul imposes him on him a sentence, a judgment. And where have we seen that before? When somebody is struck with blindness. He himself. It's like, like Paul knew, hey man, this is good punishment. This is going to humble you. This will bring you down to your knees. Total blindness has real humbling um, effects. It makes me think, don't fret about the enemies of the cross. Pray for them. Don't fret about them. Don't fear them. This guy's standing there and he's, he's opposing the gospel. It's like, Paul is like, dude, you've got no idea what you're doing. Be careful, bro. It's like, when people oppose the gospel, we think, oh, they've got power. They don't have power. They are nothing. God can make them blind right now. You pray for them that when God takes hold of them, they have an opportunity to repent. Because when God takes hold of them, it's going to hurt. They need prayer. That's what they need. Not anger or frustration. <laughs> God will sort them out. 
They don't know that they're walking on thin ice. Well, we would like to know how the story unfolds on in Paphos. What does the governor do? When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed, for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. And so the story concludes. Maybe John Marks writes this down, I'm not sure, but he, he chose one story on the island, perhaps that of the conversion of the governor, just to show to us how the gospel started penetrating the known world. The text says the governor believed. There's a combination, if you read this text, and I've highlighted it in red, there's a combination of two things that helped the governor come to believe. The first thing is, he saw the power of God. He saw it with his own eyes. He experienced God's work in front of him. Number two, he heard the message of truth. Now we can go into this town, we can go to our family members, and we can tell them the message of truth. We can tell them about Christ. We can tell them the gospel. We can show them how the, 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 the word of God is relevant in their lives. But I want to submit to you tonight, that unless God does a personal job in their life, a personal work in their lives, their salvation experience will be incomplete. Because God has to be personal. And He wants to make individual contact with us. And I think we see it beautifully here how heaven works together with man. How God works in the situation and how Paul and Barnabas bring the gospel. We need God in the evangelistic effort. So where does this leave us? Give God time with people to work His magic. So, you know, sometimes we, we talk to people about Jesus or we have a relationship with them for years. Sometimes we think, well, you have, this person has to repent in the next week, otherwise we give up. Well, God never said it's something that we have to do alone. He's also involved. And He's busy working in people's hearts. And He's working in their lives. And He's making magic happen in their lives. Magic is not what I mean. Miracles. God is doing His work in their lives. So allow God to do His work. You do your work, you let Him do His work. And at the right time, the harvest will come. So don't be... Don't try to microwave spiritual growth. Don't try to bruise the fruit. Pick it before it's ripe. You will know when it's ripe. You will know when somebody's serious about God. And God knows when that is as well. You can't microwave conversion. You've got to let it happen God's way and in this person's time. Final thoughts. Start the mission with the people most likely to trust you. Because remember I started and I said, okay, so if you want to start this missionary effort of your own personal life, start the mission with the people most likely to trust you. Let me ask you this question. Who do you know tonight who will respect what you say, but they're not close to Christ? That's your first target. That's the person you go home tonight and you pray about. And you make an appointment this week to go see them and just have a cup of coffee. Secondly, you keep your convictions pure by submitting only to the Word of God. Remember I spoke briefly about hybrid Christians? You know how you're going to keep yourself from being a hybrid? Is you make sure you respect only the Word of God and trust only it. What YouTube says is not true. 
Most of it is not true. What Facebook says definitely, what um, X, I hear it's X now, whatever, or Z or whatever, it doesn't carry truth like the Word of God does. It's so easy to become a hybrid. Don't become one. Thirdly, people who oppose the truth should be dealt with in power because they are causing harm. That's what Paul did here. And lastly, great things happen through great opposition. It's okay things get difficult. It's, it's okay when people oppose the gospel. God's going to do something great, like what happened in this story. Resistance is hard, but it's good because it reveals the power of God. That's all from me.